Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey, not a free knockrainer. Uh-oh. <laughs> that, that's not going to make sense to anyone, Mark, because we're not going to be sharing the name where I got that intro, so they won't even understand what I mean, other than it's associated with fluff lovers. That's when a... you hear us talk about fluff lover, you might, it might give you another hint. It's a very suspicious title you've chosen to give yourself there, Corey. Why would you explicitly say? I'm not say? a furry. Really honest, Mark. Furry. Wow. What, what, what's a furry? What is a fluff lover? Oh, boy. a safe way to say that Twitter handle. Before we get the, uh, the what is it, the parental advisory label slapped on this podcast, let's go ahead and <laughs> roll on into the news. Which apparently is going to cover fluff and furries. <laughs> You're in for a fun day today. So I want to start this week with a recent survey report from Cyber Reason, uh, where they published the results of querying quite a few different companies across the world on the topic of ransomware. And I know like everyone's probably sick of ransomware. Like we talked about ransomware, I think every week for the last like three weeks now, uh, at least once a month. Bad guys are forcing years. us to, man. Yeah. Like I was really hoping we were getting over the ransomware plateau, but you know, this is uh, going to stay around for quite some time. And, you know, I'm not typically the biggest fan. I, I Well, I got to word this carefully as a company that publishes a report, but I'm not typically the biggest fan of reports that come out of companies that tend to be highly marketed and things like that. Like it, it, sometimes it doesn't feel like, you know, they're trying to push some sort of agenda, I guess. But in this case, like mm. the survey results they had. Were, if, if, if I would add, by the way, the one thing to always think about, like our internet security report, we, we could have an agenda too, but that report is based on quantifiable data from our products. So it's actually, it's not like a person's feeling. It's uh, it's just pure numbers. I mean, we do add hypothesis to it to, to kind of interpret results when we say when we do, but it's very quantifiable. I think customer surveys are good. So this type of thing that, that Cyber Reason did is good data, but you gotta realize it's the feeling of the people answering who may have different levels of technicality, you know, so I think it's the, the stuff we're about to talk about, you know, I, I don't think it's only self-serving. I think it's actually good data. At least it's going to match some of the things I wanted to shill about <laughs> what you should do with ransomware. Uh, but you do have to realize it's not like a quant, it, this isn't a technical study or a scientific study in the sense that it's coming from data generated from devices. It's asking people, if, if something's happened or not. So it all depends on the quality of the response of these people. And while there are like a few questions about like, how do organizations feel about ransomware? There were some pretty good, like data driven questions in there. And the first Solid. one I want to highlight yeah. is uh, one of the stats that they have is across the world, 80% of the surveyed organizations that paid a ransom demand experienced a second attack after the fact. And let's pause on that one for a second. Cause that's massive. That's, four-fifths of all organizations that suffered ransomware and paid then suffered another ransomware attack. And there's a few things you can get out of that. Like A, paying doesn't guarantee you're now safe. And B, 
there's 80% of organizations didn't potentially close the holes that allowed that attack to actually occur in the first yeah, place. Yeah, and to me, it's it's on one hand, the scientist in me does wants to hope that it's not just matching my personal bias on this topic. But to me, that's just validating of things you and I have talked about a lot, Mark, which is I, you know, I, I don't like I, the idea of cyber insurers paying it because they don't have the long-term actuaries and and paying could just generate more and more payment, which costs more money. And then we've always talked about criminals are criminals. Just because you paid once doesn't mean you're they're really going to go away. So, and and as our audience knows, we've argued, we know the world is not black and white and there are instances where, you know, maybe your business won't exist if you don't. But, but this really supports our feeling on pain. You know, you're paying, you've proved their business case. You proved this is now a service for you, you know? So they're going to keep doing it over and over again while it works. And that could still affect you. There is no real honor among thieves. Yeah. And I know it's, I'm going to preface this with, it's easy for us to sit here and say, oh, well, why didn't they just, you know, not get hacked in the first place? And after that first place, why didn't they just, you know, fix all their fences so it didn't happen again? But the fact yeah, that yeah. 80% were hit a second time after paying for ransomware, like they suffered what is potentially a large monetary loss from having to pay an extortion. And then they didn't close whatever holes allowed this attack yeah. to occur. Could be they didn't know exactly how it got in the first place. That means maybe you got to look at organizations to help figure out how that happened in the first place. But it points to like a pretty big issue, I think, in the industry then. And the fact that security, you know, will never be perfect. It takes work. Uh, you know, shame on you if you had a big incident and didn't at least do something to help you for the next time. But we, I don't think we're trying to blame the folks that, that got hacked. And we're perfectly aware until the ransomware hits your company you know, it's very easy to, from an ivory tower, say don't pay. But still, my feeling isn't about, it's not just on principle. It really is any sort of criminal case is all about the money. And if the money dries up, either because the the authorities are taking it back or locking down the, the, the ability to use the extortion by taking it back from cryptocurrency, or because no one is paying, that's the only thing that will get these guys to move on. Yeah. And let's but talk, yeah, to, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Uh, let's talk about the criminals for a second, because of the organizations that paid uh, and suffered another attack, 46% of them believed the subsequent attack was the same threat actors. And so literally paying, like it may get you your data back. Like it's not guaranteed. It might, but it does not stop them from coming after you again. Like, in fact, it incentivizes them. They know you're going to pay the ransom. Why not just go back and hit you again if you didn't pass yeah. those, how they You are in. a known target that 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 uh, reacted to their their threat. On, on the flip side, by the way, this is where I feel like the data gets a little soft because how, but uh, by the way, I, I support the idea that is, this is correct. And frankly, if I'm sharing my ulterior motive that I don't think we should be supporting these criminals, I want this to some to some extent to be correct because it perfectly illustrates the point we just made about there's no honor among thieves. But admittedly, this is where how do they know? You know, is it be that there could be a reason? You know, maybe they were sophisticated enough that they looked at tools, tactics, and procedures, or analyzed the ransomware, and they recognize. So there's very good possibility if you're a sophisticated enough responder to the survey that that you believe in it was the same attacker is a good bet. But then there's folks that 
it could just be anecdotal. So I'm just saying that this is the stat where I would take it with a little grain of salt. It's hard to know, but it definitely follows the story that I, I think is the truth. Wow. Somehow I just got deja vu, Mark. Have we talked about stuff like this before? I feel like <laughs> yeah. we have. I, I believe we have, but without data or at least surveys to back it up. Um, if we continue looking at those organizations that paid and got hit again, or I guess let's take a step back. Just the ones that paid, 46% of them said that at least some of their data was corrupted. So they paid and then they weren't able to successfully decrypt half of their data, basically. This is probably more true because that's something anyone knows, you know, if your data either works or it doesn't. And I found this really interesting because it's, these are not ransomware authors while they're good at creating threats that, that, that encrypt this malware and put you in a tough spot. It's not like this is QA controlled, heavily tested software. And you know what I mean? So just this idea that, that you can trust them to recover your data the way you could trust a backup service. It, it's it's ludicrous. It's, you know, your data is already in question. <laughs> yeah, it literally comes down to like one messed up encoding conversion somewhere or one messed up like padding block somewhere means that decryption will not work. Like it's pretty, it's, there's not a whole lot of margin for error when it comes to encryption and decryption. So I, I can wonder if there, see this yeah. happen. I, I, what an embarrassing thing, but I, I, I truly wonder, I feel like it must have happened, even though I haven't heard of any case of this, where, you know, obviously when they get a victim and encrypt, they, there's a private key, and usually they have to get that private key back to their command and control server, but I wonder if there's ever been a case where the private key was corrupted, and they literally were found in a position as the, the threat actor where they got, you, you know, someone was willing to pay, but they actually couldn't. <laughs> I mean, crap, uh, you can look traffic. at, it wasn't exactly ransomware, but the uh, Not Pet Ya 2 stuff, or the Not Pet Ya stuff, where it was specifically designed to encrypt and then not export the private key, and they had no intentions of ever decrypting it, but they still put up the ransom note, and they still made a bit of money from people attempting to pay it, too. That is absolutely the case, at least intentionally. I could definitely see a scenario where there was an accident. I could, I could see a bug too. I mean, it's a, uh, these guys are pretty good at coding to some extent, but it's not like they, I, I don't think they beta test and, <laughs> and have and a GA alpha. In, <laughs> you know, they're not going to like keep that private key around on the client either after the fact. Like I imagine they will yeah. go to the efforts of scrubbing out of memory after they send it off yeah. to the command and control server. So if that command, that command and control server connection fails, then yeah, you're toast basically at that point. I have heard stories anecdotally that, you know, we, we often support blocking command and control channels, which I think for the good part is, for the most part is good because it can defang a lot of malware from doing certain things. But I have heard stories that a successful block of the ransomware's command and control stopped the keys from getting to command and control server, even though it's still encrypted and then deleted the local key. <laughs> And so it is funny, the, the, the weird ways that works. Um, so of the, they also highlighted one, they didn't call them out by name, but they highlighted one organization that paid a ransom on the order of millions of dollars. And then they were targeted by a second attack from the same threat actors within a fortnight. So there were- Oh, Fortnite, so fancy, Mark. Is two weeks later, you mean? British? Is it two weeks? It is two weeks, right? Yeah, it's 14 <laughs> days. <laughs> but yeah. Like, so there are actual examples of this thing happening of basically getting hit twice because you didn't patch every single hole that potentially led to this ransomware attack. Um, 
Uh, or even others? if you patch the holes that led, there's 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 a bazillion, you know. We just have to make one mistake. They just have to find one hole. Uh, so 66% of the organizations reported a significant loss of revenue following the attack, which is basically what you'd expect. Honestly, I'd say that's a little on the low end. Like, I'd anticipate a ransomware attack probably has a pretty big loss of revenue, period. Um, but there... do you mean, I, I'm assuming this is loss of revenue as far as their business has a reputation thing, not a loss of revenue as far as the the, the paid ransom. Like they, they'll certainly have a loss of revenue because they're, well, I guess it wouldn't be revenue, a loss of profits because they're paying out cash they didn't expect. But this is literally, if people know you have ransomware, you get less business. So they had a separate stat for reputation damages. That was more of a subjective. We believe our organization suffered reputation damage. This one was of the 1,263 respondents to the survey, 66% suffered significant revenue losses. And they highlighted a few non-survey examples of like FedEx's loss of 300 million from NotPetya, Atlanta's 2.6 million from the SamSam ransomware attack. So, so it could be loss of revenue from reputation damage, but it could also just be loss of revenue from downtime. Uh, the ransomware locking up systems or preventing things for a period of time, you know, prevents you from gathering and selling or doing whatever your organization does. So I get it. it you know, it, it, may, it may not be reputational only. It could just be the downtime associated with the ransomware too. Yep. Uh, next big one was 29% of organizations had to lay off employees due to financial losses following the attack. So either through paying the extortion or loss of revenue or what have you, it damaged their bottom line enough that they actually had to let people go. That's one of the sad sides of ransomware. Like these, like it's not like the money just comes out of nowhere when you have to pay for these attacks, whether by paying to clean it up on your own or by paying the extortion. And the unfortunate truth is like an organization typically tries to make a profit and you have to let people go in order to maintain that profit then or at least to st stop the uh, losses from one of these events. Um, piggybacking off of that, though, 26% of organizations had to close down operations entirely. So a bit, just a slight bit over a quarter of organizations that suffered a ransomware attack went out of business. Which, by the way, is that assumption because they didn't pay and they couldn't recover business, or did they go out of business for other related reasons? Did, or does the report not share? The report does not share. It could be like, you know, just by virtue of this survey occurring during COVID, that organizations, through other reasons, had to shut down, were also ones that were victims of ransomware attacks. They didn't go into details on that. But, like, even if you take it with a grain of salt, it makes sense that a non-zero number of organizations go out of business because of a significant cybersecurity event like yeah. a ransomware attack. Yeah, if, if, if your data's hidden, you can't do business. And that's why, by the way, we, me and Mark, I think both believe in not paying, but it's hard for us to really say it because there, if, if you're hit hard enough and you haven't prepared, everything in your business may be gone. <laughs> yeah, like you can theoretically recover from a, a ransomware attack if you've got a strong backup even in the event of like a double extortion attack obviously you're going to suffer potentially regulatory fines or at a minimum reputation yeah, a hits. data leak and a reputation hit but you can yeah. still do business but you can still by the way have a chance no, notice target is still in business so I, i'm not saying we shouldn't be upset at companies that don't maintain our data but even if you had a breach, the, the second part of the extortion where they say to leak it, your, your data is already leaked. 
and and you can survive a data breach. It's undesirable. You want to do the best you can to not only protect your own data, but any data you're the custodian of, of your customers. But while it's a bad thing, it's survivable. Yeah, exactly. But potentially losing all of your data through encryption without having backups is potentially yeah. not survivable. It's, it's like having to restart your business from scratch. You don't have your customer information. You don't have your source code. You don't have... Yeah, so that that could be a big event. And this is where like business continuity plans, why they are so important for an organization. Like, don't assume that you are 100% safe from every single security uh, challenge out there. Like, you're going to get hacked at some point, and it's a matter of being able to recover quickly with minimum downtime. And we care about security, but the whole disaster recovery business continuity you could have a fire or earthquake hit your main headquarters and lose every piece of data too. So there's a number of reasons you should have these backups. Ransomware is the most prevalent in our industry, but come on, this if you want to run a business, you have to protect your stuff. Yeah. So overall, pretty interesting report out of Cyber Reason from this one. Um, like the the eighty percent of getting paid and or paying and then getting hit again was a really big stat that I thought was interesting out of it. I certainly will be citing these in other places and crediting Cyber Reason because, as we said before, it's something you and I assumed and warned people of. So it's nice to have at least something concrete. Well, just a survey of people, uh, it's it's better than just us, you know, saying this probably happens. We just can't give you a number. Well, now Cyber Reason and the people that were part of the survey gave you some numbers, and they're even worse than I thought. By the way. I assumed, I kept on, you know, I made a point that you're going to hit, get hit again because you got hit, you wouldn't. But I was, I didn't assume it would be as high as 80%. That's even higher than I thought within, I assumed this had to be within only a couple years. I could see someone getting hit again three or four years later, but this makes it seem like you could get hit less than a month later. Or a, a fortnight. fortnight. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, so, by the way, I had to make sure to define that because I'm sure there's a lot of little millennials like you on the call that are thinking about shooting games, building stuff to. Pre <laughs> Sorry, dumb joke. God, I, believe it or not, I've not played Everyone Fortnite. Plays. <laughs> Me neither, by the way. Although right. that's, I guess you could believe it. I've downloaded it's free on so many systems, but I've ah. never actually booted it, I except have... when my nephew is here. Exactly. Uh, so moving on. Uh, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or what you probably know it better as NATO, uh, held a summit in Brussels last week where, among other defense items, they discussed how cyber attacks fit into Article 5, which, if you haven't memorized the uh, NATO treaty by now, uh, Article 5 is the section... <laughs> Shame that... on you! Yeah, exactly. Everyone should know the NATO treaty. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, Article 5 is the section of the treaty which basically states that an attack against any one member would be considered an attack against all and that all of them will come to the aid of an attacked member by definition for traditional warfare. So if yeah, someone that's what I was going to say. launches we'll get a nuke into or it, bombs but it's them or kinetic invades. attacks, yes. physical attacks is what it was originally written around. Exactly. Uh, but back in 2014, I believe it was, uh, they released a communication basically saying that cyber attacks will be a consideration in this. Um, and at the end of this summit just last week, they issued another statement, which in part states, uh, quote, we have reaffirmed the decision as to when a cyber attack would be lead to a, a invocation of Article 5 would be taken by the NATO Council on a case by case basis. 
uh, basically saying that they're going to look at them on a case-by-case basis. But more interestingly, quote, allies recognize that the impact of significant malicious cumulative cyber activities might, in certain circumstances, be considered as amounting to an armed attack. So basically a lot of big word salad in there, but it boils down to, in some cases, they are going to consider a cyber attack equivalent to an armed attack in the context of Article 5. And it's interesting hearing that spelled out in a communication like that. Like, it's something we've been talking about for quite some time. Like, at what point do these nation-state attacks be considered a, a nation-state cyber attacks be considered a actual attack? Like, you can point to the attacks against Ukraine's power grid a few years back, the United States attacking Iran's nuclear centrifuges. Like, there's been plenty of examples down the line of... Allegedly. Uh, alleged, yes. Okay. Please don't come and arrest me, NSA, CIA, whatever. Like, can... <laughs> By the way, we all know of Olympic Games. It's very likely. Although I will say we shouldn't just say the United States. It seems to be a pretty cooperative United States and Israeli operation uh, from the alleged research that has, you know, been shared. Exactly. But, like, moral of the story here, there have been pretty big cyber attacks recently that, like, they have the same amount of damage as an invasion force or a strike team would have in a similar situation. The colonial pipeline attack, while it may not have been an attack that has the effect of a physical invasion, imagine cutting off all the ability to have gas, which gives you transportation right before you do a physical attack. So even when they're not directly the same effect of a physical attack, there are definitely things that could help. Yeah. And so at around this time, t- same time as the NATO meetings, there was the G7 summit, I believe. And also President Biden had a little chit chat with President Putin, too, where understandably cybersecurity was a pretty big topic there, especially after some of the recent attacks that have been attributed back to Russia. Um, in Biden's first meeting with President Putin, he actually told him, quote, certain critical infrastructure should be considered off limits for cyber attacks. And he pointed to the 16 sectors designated by the United States as critical infrastructure, things like telecommunications, healthcare, food, and energy, which makes sense. Like some of those things are like, I I, I totally understand what his point he's trying to make is. It's basically like, we get it. You're not going to be able to control every single person in your country. You should better do a dang good job of trying to. But there are some areas that we're going to consider very seriously more than other areas. Like if you go after our gas pipelines or if you go after healthcare, like it's going to have a potentially stronger response than something else. Um, Biden even warned that the U.S. would use offensive cyber operations in the future unless Russia clamped down on cyber strikes against the U.S. He said, quote, responsible countries need to take action against criminals who conduct ransomware activities on their territory. And this is a direct call out from the colonial pipeline attack where You know, we've talked about a lot of nation state backed attacks previously, like Russian uh, actual military units hacking into organizations, Chinese military units, United States military units hacking into organizations. All signs for the colonial pipeline point to it's not a nation state backed one, just happens to be a hacking organization that was based out of Russia. And that doesn't matter in this case in that they still need to be responsible for this activity occurring within their country. There doesn't seem to have been a lot of um, activity from Russia to try and figure out who caused this attack. So, I mean, it's all politics at the end, you know, and it's kind of hard to 
drill any like, oh man, this is great. There's going to be actual actions out of this. But at the same time, it's good hearing very powerful political individuals have frank conversations about concerns with cybersecurity. Uh, absolutely. And and by the way, I know I've been doing this with a lot of stories on our podcast, but it's another prediction from the past that we that I think is getting a little closer, although in a slightly different way, but I think we should deserve credit. You know, I, I think it was in 2019, one of our predictions was something like the United Nations will propose a cybersecurity treaty. And, and what we meant about the cybersecurity treaty was this problem, was that uh, cybersecurity or, or cyber attacks have hit that level where they can be as uh, damaging and effective as physical attacks. And, and I think the nations that come together it's in their best interest to kind of outline the terms of cyber war in the same way we have terms of physical warfare, you know, things you can and can't do during, you know, rules of engagement, ways to treat prisoners of war. This is something that's needed to happen for a long time because cybersecurity is getting pretty serious. So while we, we you know, our prediction was United Nations, I, I think NATO is different, but kind of a similar concept. So, uh, Anyways, another way of us saying sometimes when we do our prediction recap for the exact year, you know, it's like, oh, we only got 60% or whatever. And by the way, this year doesn't look like we were doing that great. But two years later, suddenly all the things we've been saying are, are we're just a little ahead of the game. Yeah. And in this specific scenario, like it makes sense that something has to happen because these countries, us included, are going to continue taking pot shots at each other basically with cyber attacks until someone crosses a line and suddenly becomes a actual international conflict. Yep. There has to be rules of engagement. Kind of a side note story, but uh, in our own little Threat Lab channel, we uh, it, it's funny what countries do help and don't. Uh, it, CLOP is C-L-O-P, is a group of, uh, again, ransomware authors, ran, a ransomware group, uh, or, or a cybercrime group. They do a lot of different crime, but cy ransomware is one of their big things. And in Ukraine, they just caught, I think it was four or six, I'm trying to remember, six defendants in Ukraine, Kiev area, that were part of this group, had a lot of uh, swag because they make a lot of money. But unfortunately, it's probably not going to affect Klopp because Klopp is a pretty big group and most of them live in Russia. And so despite this, this arrest of six folks, uh, they actually say we do not believe any core actors behind Klopp were apprehended due to the fact that they're probably living in Russia. So I, I think that this is why Biden is there, you know, talking to Putin. Uh, the countries that are cooperating with NATO and Ukraine already has a conflicting relationship with Russia, but they're trying to stay independent. You know, they're trying to go after this with international groups that included Korean police, Intel 471, U.S. authorities. But uh, the, the threat actors seem to know that if they live in Russia, they're safe. It seems to be this kind of unspoken rule that as long as you don't go after Russian people out of Russia, if you go after international targets, yeah. they kind of turn a blind eye to your activities. That's very interesting because you even see that on a technical level. You see in the malware itself, whether it's the drive-by-download distributing site, whether it's the malware, they literally look for Russian language 
uh, if it's the malware on a computer, the Russian keyboard, Cyrillic, and they purposely don't infect any devices that have Russian. We used to joke that maybe we should add a Russian keyboard to our OS to help protect <laughs> us, but it's a very excellent point. And I also think it's why, you know, this is where I'm getting into speculation and tinfoil hat, but while these ransomware actors that we are attributing to Russia are very criminal, not so much necessarily direct nation state actors. There seems to be a cooperation, kind of a, a we know you exist and vice versa. And, and maybe they even are sometimes used for national state sponsored stuff. But it's even though it's not directly attached to the state sponsored actors we sometimes talk about, there, there, there really does seem to be kind of a, a synergistic what's the word i'm looking for what's what is it when two animals survive together because they help each other symbiotic symbiotic thank you that's what i was looking for relationship between the criminal actors in russia and the government itself yeah i think you're absolutely right with that um so closing out this week um one of our team members stumbled across a across a tweet from a security expert that really caught my attention as an area of cybercrime that's pretty often overlooked so we always hear about you know dark web i would say even new i think that the method we're talking about might be sometimes overlooked but even the marketplace we're talking about is definitely overlooked and could even be new enough that it's it's a new underground market that's smartly in my opinion from a bad guy perspective developing yeah so we always hear about like dark web and underground forums where hackers will sell or leak databases that they've of like usernames and passwords that they've stolen from various or organizations. Or PII or credit cards. A lot of things are for sale on there, but the one we'll talk about is newish. Yeah, but usernames and passwords aren't always the only form of authentication available on some of these marketplaces. And sometimes it's not enough just to get a username and password. Like there's defensive tools out there these days for authentication. MFA? Yep, MFA. <laughs> Um, and even just like contextual authentication, where it'll look at other information about your session before approving it or requiring something like MFA, where sometimes a yeah. username and password isn't enough. Sometimes, though, you don't even need a username and password, though, if you're able to get other authenticated material, too. Um, so this researcher and highlighted... you may not need the MFA or the contextual information because that has already been done as well as yeah. we'll soon find out so this researcher highlighted a inv i would give the name of the researcher but their uh, twitter handle is quite vulgar uh, so i'm going to skip over <laughs> that one um, they highlighted a invite only marketplace called genesis market that sells access to almost 400,000 compromised machines including their browser cookies save logins and fingerprints for impersonation uh, it's got a search feature that lets prospective buyers search for individual sites that might have saved cookies or saved credentials. Uh, they gave the example of like searching for star.slack.com and then buying credentials for EA's, uh, Electronic Arts's Slack channel. Because uh, as we you might know, uh, Electronic, Electronic Arts was breached a few weeks ago uh, by social engineering on their Slack channels. Um, and then, so basically a buyer would buy one of these bundles uh, on Genesis, which you then plug into a browser plugin, a Chrome plugin that they developed, where it causes your browser to completely impersonate a real user's browser at that organization. Everything from plugging in session cookies that they've yanked out, uh, changing the fingerprint of the browser itself, so like the headers and everything to make it appear as that user's actual browser, um, which can then, obviously, if you get a 
authentication session cookie let you just hop right into whatever session they had and then potentially bypass a lot of detections by looking exactly like their actual browser. Um, really, really interesting stuff. Like they sell what they call basically fingerprint bundles. But more interestingly, like you don't often hear about buying session cookies off of underground marketplaces. Like you hear username and password, go log in with it. But with a session cookie, you don't need the password. You don't need the MFA token. You just set your browser session to use this cookie and continue on as if you were that actual user. By the way, I, I, I ultimately we're getting at is there seems to be an underground cookie market. And while it's more than that, I, I really appreciate you mentioning the, the browser plugin because as you say, there's a lot they look for to to make sure the session that, that they might tie to the session to make sure you are who you say you are. So it might be more complex in some cases than just a cookie. The session is pre-authenticated. You know, getting that cookie with a pre-authenticated session token means you've already gone through the steps. The MFA is gone, the password, you don't need any of that crap. I will say the only downside to that, and I wish this is an invite only and or I think it's invite only, so we don't have any insight into it ourselves yet. I wish I could see it because there is a downside to this and that session tokens should expire. And on some smart sites, like if you have a a network security appliance that that you're doing management to, you sh you should be asked for your password pretty quickly if you haven't touched it for a long time. So I, I this would be the type of hot commodity that would have a a, a ticking time bomb to it. So you know I, I'm curious how they manage that and how they talk about this, how long this cookie is. On the flip side, there are sites out there like Facebook where the the, the timeout for a token seemed to be really, really long, as long as the the other kind of contextual things still match. Like I, I, I feel like I don't have to log into Facebook more than once a month, but that's assuming I'm coming from the same browser, the same computer, the same place, blah, blah, blah. So I actually have an answer to your question there that Genesis has that covered. Uh, so basically they get these credentials from infected workstations. So they've got an actual like botnet infection on them. And so they're updating them. Yeah. So as long as that malware remains in place, uh, they are able to continuously update straight into that web browser plugin, new session keys, new fingerprints, everything. So that until that user, that victim has identified that they've been infected. Cleans it. Yep. They always get the new session token. getting new session token. So it's like pretty crazy to think of that basically like yeah. this is a complete bypass of a lot of authentication protections. Uh, really, the only thing they'd be able to spot is a different IP address now that's using this authentication material. That is something you can spot. That is something you can take into account. Um, but like, there's not a lot of defensive tools will take into that account when it comes to just the session cookie itself. Like they're looking at the authentication event, not suddenly someone's browser showing up in a separate location. By the way, I, I'm going to I'm going to call this researcher fluff lover. There I think that's go. a pretty safe way of, of, of translating his his username. Professor Fluff Lover. Fluff Lover. That sounds yeah. good. Much safer than his real one. <laughs> uh, but yeah, really interesting research. Like I'm going to make sure our team does our best to try and get an invite to this so we can start tracking it as well. Because it is an area that like you don't often hear talked about. Like You always hear the usernames and passwords, not the other authentication material that is 
potentially even more damaging than a username and password. I wouldn't even say potentially. It's, it seems very clearly more damaging because it bypasses a lot of other controls. Keep your endpoint protection and endpoint detection response up to date in order to stop these infections and stop your session information from getting scraped right out and sent to somewhere else. Yeah. Man, crazy stuff. These hackers are getting pretty good these days. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode <laughs> topics, like you can what reach the heck out to is us on furry? Twitter. <laughs> I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you'll hear from us next week. Enjoy your cookies and fur. Great. <laughs>